0: Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Okay, I've got a couple of announcements to remind everybody of. Make sure you get these on your calendar. There will not be Bible class Thursday night this week because it's Thanksgiving. And then two weeks from tonight, which will be, I think that's December the 8th, Tuesday night, there will not be Bible class that week because that is the week of the annual pre-trib rapture uh, study group meeting in Dallas, and so uh, several of us. Will be up in Dallas, including most of the sound and video equipment, uh, because we haul that up there every year to uh, video and record the conference for uh, for the pre-trip folks. So that week there will not be class. There will not be class on Christmas Eve, but there will be class on New Year's Eve. So that should pretty much keep you scheduled. We'll have that in the calendar. All of that will be in the calendar that comes out in the December uh, December bulletin. Also, were there any more? Did all the financial statements go out? Okay. All right, before we get started, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're so thankful that we have you to come to in time of need in our lives, and Father, we face many different situations in a congregation of this size, and people face different challenges at this time of year with the holidays, challenges related to family travel, uh, challenges related to just logistics and the stresses that come our way, Father, but it's a tremendous opportunity to be able to present the gospel to those who uh, have never heard, a tremendous opportunity for us to be a testimony and witness of the your grace in our lives and all that it means for us and to be reminded that all that we have is from you and that we should always have an attitude of gratitude toward everything that we have because we know that you are in control of our lives and you provide us with everything and that you are whether whether it appears to us to be something that is negative or positive something that is adverse or something that uh, is pleasing We know that everything works together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to uh, your purpose. So, Father, we pray that you would enable us to be a solid testimony of your grace, your love, and that we might fulfill the the purpose you have for us in our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 17, and we're back in the chapter dealing with the nature of the, of the end-time kingdom of the Antichrist that is labeled Babylon the Great. We saw in the last few lessons going through the Old Testament that when you look at a passage that has term, specific terminology in it, for example, this one that talks about Babylon the Great, One of the things that must be done in determining the meaning of a phrase like that is how it is used in the Scripture, how that phrase is used throughout the Bible. And what we have in the Scripture is a consistent pattern from the time of Genesis 11 and the construction of the Tower of Babel in the plain of Shinar through the passages we studied in Isaiah 13 and 14, Jeremiah fifty fifty one Zechariah five that these these chapters all view Babylon as being a literal location on the Euphrates River. Furthermore, as we have studied in uh, in Revelation so far, we've seen that in the um, uh, sixth trumpet judgment, there is the release of this two hundred million man or demon army. From underneath the Euphrates. The Euphrates was the eastern border for the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the eastern border of the promised land, and that is where Babylon is located on the Euphrates River. Furthermore, we've seen in the bold judgments that the Euphrates River dries up so that the kings of the east are able to come across in their invasion of the land, invasion of Israel. All of this terminology is related to that location. If Babylon is to be interpreted with a spiritual or allegorical meaning, in other words, a way that some amillennialists have interpreted it to apply to Rome and that leaked over as sort of a residual effect into a lot of dispensational uh, dispensational exposition in the last, uh, couple of hundred years. They still have, there's still those who believe that, uh, Babylon in 17 and Revelation 17 and 18 is not literal Babylon, but really is just a code word for Rome. But there's no basis for arguing that. And it's interesting how we have a lot of people, of course, here, there, and around the world that listen in on, to Bible classes, either MP3s or videos, or they listen to the live streaming. And I've had more emails, it hasn't been a lot of emails, but anything would be more, uh, a lot of emails of questions related to Babylon. Could this really be th- this place or that place or whatever? No, it, it is the, for to to apply to this passage the same rule of interpretation that we apply to every other passage of scripture this means that the historic site of babylon in on the euphrates river in Iraq, on the plain of Shinar, must be the location of this Babylon. We may not see how it is going to be resurrected. We may not understand how that is going to be brought about in the plan of God because it just doesn't look like that can happen right now, but that's not how we interpret Scripture. So there seems to be a pattern throughout Scripture of a prophecy of a complete and total destruction of Babylon that will leave the place completely uninhabitable forever. And that has not been fulfilled yet. And so we must understand these scriptures literally and recognize that this is referring to something yet future as the seat of economic and religious power for the kingdom that is developed by the Antichrist uh, during the end time. So just a couple of uh, verses beginning to review where we are down to uh, verse 5, where we stopped to investigate the meeting of Babylon. The situation is that there is one of the seven angels who have uh, poured out the bold judgments comes to John and tells him to come, and he is going to show to John the judgment of the great harlot. Now, if you look at the last verse of the, of the passage, we're told that the woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. What we'll see is that the great harlot is the system of infidelity to God that governs the affairs of man, the kingdom of man. It's what we call in some places human viewpoint, other places the worldly thinking or cosmic thinking that governs the world. It is all of the thought systems that come together to give man a rationale for living life apart from God, rejecting God, ignoring God, and taking God out of his periphery. So this is who the great harlot is, the great uh, whore of Babylon. Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. We pointed out that this is also a great description Babylon in the ancient world because of the many canals that extended out from the Euphrates at the location of Babylon so that it actually looked as if the city sat on the water if you looked at it with the right uh, right angle of the sun. Revelation 17.15 identifies who the waters are. Always as we go through this, we'll see the angel interprets the meaning of what is seen. This is the first time we've really seen an interpreting angel in Revelation. We see that in Daniel quite frequently, but this is the first time in Revelation. The 15th verse will indicate that the waters represent the nations, the Gentiles. The emphasis calling the Babylon the great harlot, the great prostitute, the great whore, whatever term you want to use, the focus is on spiritual infidelity, and that indicates the mentality of man it is the religio political system that man adopts in his thinking to try to justify his existence apart from god and so it is it, it that's ha- the best way to express it is infidelity toward god as the creator now this uh image this vision that is seen in 17 focuses on the uh, uh, great harlot who is sitting on a beast who has seven heads and ten horns. Now this takes us back to Daniel chapter 7 verse 1 where Daniel has a vision and in his vision he sees a fourth beast, that fourth beast relates to the Beast that is ridden by the the woman in Revelation seventeen, Daniel wrote of the beast that he saw. Uh, he saw a fourth beast dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth related to the iron of the legs and uh, lower limbs of the statue that uh, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw back in Daniel chapter two. This depicts the Roman Empire. Rome 1 and Rome 2, the historic Rome and future Rome. Uh, It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So this is the origin of the ten-horned beast. Uh, So as we go through Revelation 17, uh, 1 and now 17, 2, that it is the great harlot, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And so this again introduces a term that's important to understand in this passage. Those who dwell on the earth. This phrase is used numerous times in Revelation and it refers to those who have an earthbound view of reality. They have rejected what God has revealed. They have rejected God, they do not have a divine perspective on anything, only a finite human perspective, and these will never be saved. These are those who dwell on the earth are those who will never trust in Christ at all, no matter what God does. There are many, it's not a term that's equivalent to unbelievers, because there are going going to be many unbelievers during the tribulation period who become believers. But this refers to those unbelievers during the tribulation period who never become believers. They are earthbound in their thinking, and they're characterized because they have over imbibed in the infidelity that is the unfaithfulness to God that characterizes the thinking of the great harlot. In verse three we read, and he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names having seven heads and ten horns, just correlating the, all of these passages together. So, the beast in revelation seventeen three represents a kingdom, not the king. Some places it gets hard it 's hard to tell the difference when John is writing whether he 's talking about the king or the kingdom, and in some places there 's such a close connection between the king and the kingdom that those two ideas are used interchangeably, but not in this particular passage. So, the beast here represents the kingdom. That is uh, under the influence of the great harlot, it's described as having seven heads and ten horns. This same depiction is given in Revelation chapter twelve three in relationship to the great red dragon, who is identified in that chapter as Satan, the serpent. Uh, then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold the great red dragon having seven horns or seven heads and ten horns. And on his heads were seven diadems. Now, remember, and someday maybe I'll get this figured out, but in 12.3, the diadems are on the seven heads. In the next description, the diadems are going to be on the ten horns. And then there's going to be some other, other distinctions or uh, differences as well. But this depicts the dragon as the real power behind the kingdom of man. The kingdom of man is expressing the thought system of Satan. And as I've said many times, the thought system of Satan is characterized by two things, arrogance and antagonism. Arrogance is when the creature asserts his authority, his ability over God. He thinks he knows more than God thinks. And that leads to antagonism to God and rejection of whatever God says and whatever God stands for, and so anytime uh, someone is operating in uh, the in the cosmic system in the world system, and they are in complete um, arrogance, then they will also be hostile to the truth and hostile to god and so whenever anybody comes along and says anything or does anything that emphasizes. Uh, the truth, they are going to react in an extreme manner to that because they've been trying to stuff God into a corner or back into the deepest, darkest place in the closet in their brain and in their mind and their thinking. And as soon as somebody comes along and uh, says, Merry Christmas or... Uh, says something else that talks about God, then immediately uh, God jumps out of their, the closet in their brain, and they've got to stuff him down again, and so they get all angry and upset. And when you live in a culture that has become increasingly antagonistic to Christianity and the Bible, then it doesn't take much for some people to get really irritated and hostile toward Christians. In fact, I got an email a little while ago. Somebody's made a suggestion that all the Christians in the United States ought to send the sweetest, nicest Christmas card you can find to the ACLU. And this will just overload the entire, stress out their system, clog their whole mail system. They won't know what the important mail is or anything else. I thought, well, that's certainly a nice idea. They need to hear the gospel. So we have the ten-headed seven, uh, or seven-horned, uh, dragon. Then Revelation 12, one depicts that as the, as the dragon. And in Revelation 13, one, John says that he stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now here the, the blasphemous name is on the heads. Later it's going to have, a in our passage, a different location. It depicts the Antichrist as the personification of the kingdom of man as historically against God. So when you begin to read in Revelation thirteen one about this beast coming out of the sea, rising up out of the sea because it has not been in existence, so this is the time when this beast is coming forth. Now it sounds initially like we're talking about the kingdom here, but then when we start looking at the at what is described about the head wound, and there are those who teach in prophetic circles that the head wound is the destruction of the kingdom, not a personal uh, fatal wound for the, the king himself. But that seems to run uh, contrary to what is um, what it said in about the false prophet, who is described in, uh, Revelation 13 verse 11 and following. Because there we're told that, uh, the false prophet, the second beast, causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. So that doesn't fit necessarily a kingdom because they're not worshiping the kingdom but worshiping the, the, the king, the individual, the antichrist who receives his power from Satan, and so, in revelation thirteen uh, three and following the focus really seems to be on the beast as an individual, so you have to watch and i 'm going to come back to this before we 're done tonight and and there 's a reason i'm i 'm belaboring this point because of um, some other aspects that develop in the seventeenth chapter so revelation thirteen one through ten depict the Antichrist as the personification of the kingdom of man. He is the ruler. The focus there is on an individual. So in summarizing this, what we see is uh, that in Revelation 12, 3, the dragon has seven heads and ten horns, and the crowns are on the heads. In Revelation 13:1 the beast is viewed as a person not the kingdom. The beast has seven heads, 10 horns with the 10 crowns. The heads have blasphemous names and in Revelation 13:2 the dragon empowers the beast. So that's a the depiction of him as a person. And in verse 7 the beast makes war with the saints and has authority over every tribe, tongue and nation. And in verse 7 that is a very strong statement because it comes after he comes out of the sea. And the point I'm going to make is that I think, after I've been studying numerous things since we covered Revelation 13, is that the beast coming out of the sea is related to the, his, the second period Of his career, which is after the abomin, uh, not it's after the abomination of desolation, but I believe the abomination of desolation comes immediately after his being healed and restored and recovering life after the fatal head wound. All of that happens right at the at the midpoint. So we see in Revelation that there are four beasts that are that are described in different places. The first beast is the beast out of the abyss mentioned in Revelation 11 I think that's verse 17 Revelation 11:17 who is the one who uh is responsible for killing the two witnesses. Now, I did I, I made this slide earlier based on some things I've looked at the last month or so. Yet as I was looking at reading more commentaries and wrestling through different aspects of this. Sometimes this gets pretty tedious, just trying to put all these details together. So I know sometimes you think, golly, we just seem like we're walking through quicksand and snowshoes, but you ought to see what I try to do every week. Um, the beast out of the abyss, if this is the referring to, if the beast who comes out at the time he comes out of the abyss is referring to the resurrection or the resuscitation of the Antichrist, uh, as because most commentators will connect this verse, Revelation eleven seventeen, to a description that is found in our chapter in seventeen, um, where it talks about the beast is the one who came up out of the abyss in verse eight. The beast that you saw was and is not. That's the period when he's dead and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. That suggests for many people that the career of the Antichrist uh, takes on a new form after he is returned to life because he is energized by either Satan or a demon, possibly Abaddon, after he is restored to life. And if that is true, that has imp- other implications for understanding the chronology of of, uh, of the midpoint of the tribulation, because that would indicate that uh, the killing of the two witnesses in Revelation 11 is at near the middle point of the tribulation, putting their ministry in the first half, which is what I have taught or what I taught when we went through that. Uh, the second beast that is mentioned is the Antichrist as a personification of the final kingdom in revelation thirteen one through ten, and then the third beast that's mentioned is the false prophet uh, and he's mentioned in revelation uh, thirteen eleven to the uh, end of the chapter, which would be verse eighteen revelation uh, thirteen Eleven to eighteen, and then the fourth beast that 's mentioned is the scarlet beast with the seven heads and ten horns, which represents the kingdom, not the individual, in Revelation chapter seventeen. So this brings us to the description of the woman riding the beast in seventeen three and four. He carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names. So here the blasphemous names aren't on the horns, they just describe the beast in general. Having seven heads and ten horns, the woman is arrayed in purple and scarlet, which indicates wealth, power, authority, prestige, uh, royalty, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication now the term abomination in scripture is almost always associated with idolatry and the filthiness of her fornication reinforces the infidelity of her religious uh, loyalty so this is further explained within the passage in revelation 17 verse 12 so we you can draw a connection line between revelation 17:3 and revelation 17:12 where the interpreting angel tells John, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet. That indicates it's yet future from John's time. But they receive authority for one hour, that's an idiom for a short time, for one hour as kings with the beast. So the ten kings are distinct from the beast again. We saw the same thing in Daniel, that there were the ten, king, the ten horns and then a little horn came up. This is in Daniel chapter 7. A little horn came up and rips out three of the original ten from their root, indicating a, a powerful takeover or dominance, and then he forms his kingdom out of that. So it helps us to understand that chronology a little bit. In our contemporary world, the woman riding the beast is a symbol that has been picked up by uh, the European Union. I am not saying when I'm making these references that the EU is the fulfillment of this prophecy. I'm just showing you that there are constantly maneuvers, these trends continue that will eventuate after the rapture that will eventually, eventuate in the forming of this uh, ten-nation confederacy. But even now we already see the unbelieving world using the symbols that God said would be there in the end times. The woman riding the beast, uh, gener- uh, constructing the translation center for the EU in Brussels. It's the, uh, uh, to be designed to look like an unfinished Tower of Babel, All of these kinds of things just continue to push us toward the kind of environment, a political scene that is expressed uh, in in Revelation and described as part of the end times. Revelation 17.5 said that on her forehead there is a name, uh, Mystery Babylon the Great. The mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. This is the source of all infidelity toward God. I pointed out that there's a difference in the way the King James translators handled the Greek and others. It doesn't have to do with the original text. It just has to do with with how they understood it and it should be translated as it is in most modern translations the mystery is not part of the title everywhere else in, in the scripture where you have babylon the great mentioned it is alone it's not mystery babylon it is just babylon the great as seen in revelation 14:8 16:19 and 18:2 And so there is something mysterious that will be revealed about Babylon. The term mysterion indicates something that's previously unknown or unrevealed. And so this sign being on her forehead indicates that it says something about her intrinsic character. And I pointed out that the unrevealed matter is that her intrinsic character and identity is not going to be known except by divine revelation. The world is going to fall in love with her. They're going to think that this is the most wonderful kingdom and political system that has ever existed. But that is not the case. Revelation seventeen seven and 8 is going to define what this mystery is for us a little further. Uh, the angel will, says to John in verse 7, Why did you marvel? and and John is just flabbergasted when he sees this he is just amazed the text uses a construction and a duplication of the verb with a noun indicating that he marveled in a an astounding manner he just his mouth dropped open when he saw this this depiction of the woman riding the beast so the angel says why did you marvel why did you why were you so amazed why were you so shocked when you saw this I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. That word for perdition is the same word used of uh, describing Judas as the son of perdition, and it's a form of the word that is used of those who perish in John 3.16 who do not believe in Jesus Christ as the Lord. So it is a picture of those who are sent to the lake of fire for eternity. And the angel goes on to say in the last part of verse 8, those who dwell on the earth will marvel, those whose names are not written in the book of life, they're unbelievers. Uh, they're not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. So we have the future revival of the old Babylonian system as an interconnected political, social, economic, and religious system. They all come together. It expresses, it is the finest expression of human rebellious thought ever to exist in history. And they will have their golden age for an extremely short period of time. So then we get into new territory here in verse 6 where John says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Now, the word saints doesn't indicate necessarily church-age believers. A saint is a sanctified one. It refers to any believers. You always have to say which saints. In the Old Testament, there were saints who were part of Israel. They were believers in the Old Testament. Then in the Church Age, there are saints in the Church Age. These are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ during the Church Age. Then there are tribulation saints. The word saint itself simply indicates a believer. It doesn't have a, a, a specific time reference associated with it. So there is a a double reference here in the sense that they're called the the saints and then they're called the martyrs of Jesus so the woman is drunk with the blood of the saints she has just she, this is just depicts the fact that she thinks that uh, the world system thinks that victory is at hand the these christians will be destroyed we have finally won and the these christians have lost And so John says, when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. I was just blown away. He is amazed with great amazement. He wonders with great wonder, the text says. And these, uh, being drunk, the woman being drunk with the blood of the saints indicates how the kingdom at the end time is going to make an enemy out of anyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and seek to completely destroy them and to execute and murder anyone who is a Christian. We saw this indicated in the uh, seal judgments in Revelation chapter 6 that there is a large group of martyrs that will be in heaven under the altar in Revelation six ten and 11. And then in Revelation 13.5, we're told that the, uh, 13.15 rather, that the false prophet, the second beast, has granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And so there will be uh, hit squads going out to kill and execute on the spot anyone who doesn't have the visible mark of the beast on them. Then, in Revelation 16:6, 6, we read that for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. That is, the you is talking to the uh, kingdom, the the earth dwellers. For it is their just due. So, they, or excuse me, it's talking to God. You have given them blood to drink, as God is pouring out justice upon them, and uh, the earth dwellers are beginning to uh, be destroyed. In divine judgment, the wrath of God in Revelation chapter 16. Then we come to verse 7. The angel saying to John, why did you marvel? So here the angel is going to uh, explain the mystery of the woman and the beast, the seven heads and the ten horns. So now we're going to get that divine interpretation. First of all, who's the beast? The beast is des- described in verse 8, The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. Now, let's stop and think about this verse a minute. What's the time reference here? John is living in 95 A.D. So present tense for John in 95 A.D., would indicate that if the, the the beast was, that would mean that the beast would be past tense at at John's time. Is not would indicate that it didn't exist in John's time, and will ascend would indicate a future uh, 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 resurrection of that kingdom. But that doesn't fit because the kingdom is the fourth is the second stage of the fourth beast. It's the revived Roman Empire. And so the, these tenses must be understood in reference to the time of the tribulation itself. So the angel is speaking from within the, the time framework of the tribulation, saying that the beast that you saw was, it had existence in past time. It is not, that is, there's a period of time Up to his, it's, uh, being revived in the tribulation period, and then it will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. At this point, the focus is not on the beast as the kingdom, but now it is shifted to focusing on the beast as the person, the person who personifies the beast, which is the Antichrist. And this is a reference to the fact that, that this beast was and then is not, he lost his life, he had a fatal uh, head wound, and then he ascends out of the bottomless pit and will, his destiny is to go to perdition. The point here is that if verse 8 is referring to the career of the Antichrist and his uh, resurrection or resuscitation that occurs when the uh, second beast, brings him back to life, then what this shows is that his demon possession, that there's a different aspect to his reign after the midpoint of the tribulation, and he's going to be personally empowered by either some demon, or Abaddon, who is the leader of the, those demons that were chained or imprisoned in the abyss, according to uh, Revelation chapter 9, or uh, he is going to be indwelt by Satan, if indeed that's who that uh, person is. I, th- I take it that he's, it's probably not Satan per se, but is probably this powerful uh, demon that comes out of the abyss that's the king of those locust kings in uh, in Revelation chapter 9. He goes on to say that the interpreting angel goes on to say that those who dwell on the earth will marvel. See, they're not going to marvel like John Mar- John marvels. He's just shocked at this, what, it, what happens on the earth and the hostility toward God. But the earth dwellers marvel because they're so impressed by the miracle that the king, the beast, has been brought back to life. And for them, this means that he is the one who, who is really the Messiah. So it just reaffirms his uh, credentials as a substitute Christ, And you see that in, in two ways here. First of all, in the sense of the meaning of the word antichrist, which is only used one time, and that's in 1 John, and it means a substitute Christ. The Greek preposition anti doesn't mean against. That's the Latin preposition anti. The Greek preposition anti means instead of. He's a substitute Christ. But you see that also in how uh, there's... Um, This playoff of the title for God, God the Father, that you see all through Revelation. God the Father is the one who is and who was and who is to come. But here the beast is the one who was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit. So it's a playoff of the title for for God because it's showing that he is uh, trying to be a substitute for God. That's the historic role of Satan. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world because they are not believers and when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. So they marvel when they see him coming back to life. And then we see a third repetition of this title at the beginning of verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who, wait a minute, that's just a repetition of that verse. Okay, verse 9. Here is the mind which has wisdom, the explanation of what is seen. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. Now, here's the question. Who do these seven hills what do these seven hills refer to? There are many people who have thought down through the ages that this relates to the seven hills of of Rome because Rome was initially built on seven hills, although later on, at least by the time of Christ, there was an expansion and there were two or three other hills that, uh, that uh, Rome had expanded to cover. And this it can't be Rome at all. The seven heads aren't the seven hills of Rome. This is not talking about the woman sitting on the seven hills of Rome because verse 10 goes on to say that these seven heads are seven hills, which are seven kings. So there it's clear from the identification that the seven hills represent seven historic kingdoms. ...that have come down through the ages, that the seven heads are these seven kings. So these two terms are equated, equivalent to one another. Now we see that phraseology of the seven heads in other passages. For example, in Revelation 13.1, the beast that came out of the sea had ten horns and seven heads... The dragon has seven heads and ten horns in Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. And the this represents seven different kingdoms described in verse 10 as uh, that five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. So they're divided into three groups, five in the past tense, one in the present tense, and one in the future tense. Now, historically, there have been seven kingdoms that have had power over Israel. And that's one thing that that is focused on here is this historic antagonism to the nation Israel, to God's people. And these seven kingdoms are, first of all, a a five-nation group, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, And the Greek Empire. All of these were past tense in AD ninety when John is writing. Then there is one that it is that is a present tense, and this is Rome. Rome one, the first manifestation of the Roman Empire from uh, until the destruction of uh Byzantium or Istanbul. And, uh, 14, uh, in the 1400s. Then we have one other kingdom that's yet future. And this kingdom that is yet future is the revival of the Roman Empire, Rome II, a future revived kingdom. Now we get a little more information about this kingdom in the 11th verse. The 11th verse says, the beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition so now it's a second statement that his destiny is perdition his, his destiny is destruction but how is he both the seven of the seven and the eighth that seems difficult to understand that one, in one sense he is one of the seven heads now what are the seven heads those are the historic manifestations of the kingdom. Five are, actually five are historic. One was present in John's time and one is future. So in one sense, he represents the seventh manifestation of the kingdom of man and its hostility to God, which is the revived Roman Empire. But also, he represents something new that transpires after he has his fatal head wound and he is brought back to life. He is now uh, satanically empowered, and he is going to uh, rule over the kingdom, that final form of the kingdom, in some new sense. So as one of the seven, the beast is a kingdom, the seventh form, but as the eighth, he is the king of that kingdom who sustains the head wound, uh, seems to die, uh, ascends from the abyss after uh, his wound is healed. But his destiny is uh, the lake of fire. Now in Revelation uh, seventeen twenty four says that as for the ten horns out of this, um, oh, this is in, uh, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel seven twenty three and 24, uh, as for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise. So that is the revived Roman Empire mentioned by Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. Then verse 24 says, another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous one. So you see, Daniel says the same thing that there is this uh, originally a kingdom with the ten horns, the ten kings, and then there's another one, an eleventh king, that arises after the ten, and he's going to be different, qualitatively different, from the previous ones, and he will subdue three kings. This is the little horn of Daniel. And his judgment is mentioned then in verse 26 that he will be judged and his dominion will be taken away and annihilated and destroyed forever. So the little horn in Daniel 7 is the same as the beast in Revelation 13 and is the same as the 8th king in Revelation chapter 11. They're all identified. This is the Antichrist. He has uh, this manifestation. So, verse 12, getting into the final judgment of the of the uh, woman riding the beast. The ten horns which you saw are the ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet. From John's day, it was yet future. But they receive authority for one hour. One hour just indicates a limited time as kings with the beast. Now, as we've gone through this, We've gotten an understanding of what all these symbols, all these images represent. The beast is represents the fourth kingdom uh, and the king in the in time of that kingdom that was and is not and will ascend from the abyss. The seven heads on the beast represent seven mountains or seven historical, uh, manifestations of the kingdom of man, five that are in the past, at the time that John wrote, one that was present when John wrote, one that is yet future. These seven kings represent Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, uh, Rome 1, and Rome 2. So that the beast that was and is not is the eighth king, but he comes out of the seven uh, Seven kingdoms, the seven, uh, the seven heads. So he comes out from one of them. The ten horns then equal ten kings that will get their kingdoms in the future. The waters are the peoples, the multitudes, the nations, and, and tongues. This represents the Gentiles. And then in the last verse, we're going to be told that the woman equals the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. This is the one, the something that unifies all of the kingdoms of man. What is it that is that is the same for all these kingdoms, from the ancient Egyptians all the way up to the future revived Roman Empire? What is the one thing that they all have in common? It is their assertion of their power and their ability to make life work apart from God and to bring in a kingdom on earth that is... Uh, totally independent of God. So we see from this that the woman represents the religious, political, economic philosophy of the cosmic system that unifies all of these different kingdoms down through history. Now when we get into the end times, into the tribulation, Verse 13 says that these ten kings, and they are all of one mind, they are unanimous in their support of the Antichrist. They're of one mind, and they will give their power and their authority to the beast. He is going to be such a powerful, charismatic figure that they are going to just indiscriminately give over to him all of their power, all of their authority, and let him rule the world. And as part of that, then, they are going to be uh, in complete antagonism to all form, all Christians and Christianity in the end times. They will make war with the Lamb, with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the, this is just a summary verse in verse 14. The Lamb will overcome them because He is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings and those who are with him. So the Lamb will overcome them and those who are with him, and they are called chosen and faithful. These are titles related to every believer. Then in verse 15, the interpreting angel says to John, The waters which you saw, where the harlot sits, are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. Again, we've already talked about this verse, identifying The influence, the harlot influences all the Gentile nations and peoples down through history. Verse 16, the ten horns, these will hate the harlot. See, this is what happens in arrogance. When people get into arrogance and they start getting so full of themselves and so absorbed with their own importance that anything that contradicts them is going, they are going to they are going to hate. And so the kings eventually are going to turn against the harlot, and it becomes self-destructive. Arrogance always ends up being self-destructive. Uh, they will hate the harlot and make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. The, God is going, as we'll see in the next verse, God is going to completely Remove all restraints on evil so that the arrogance of man is going to be able to pursue its ends without any restraint whatsoever. And the result is that the the whole kingdom enterprise of the Antichrist is going to begin to just unravel and fall in upon itself because it is so divorced from reality. Whenever people are operating in arrogance... They are operating on a just a, a a fantasy depiction, a fantasy understanding of the world. The more arrogant people are, the more unreal their view of life is. And when they start making the, all of their decisions related to life, related to economics, related to job, related to national policy or individual policy or our our business policy based on a fantasy construct of reality then sooner or later it will collapse and so that's what god does is he allows this them to push their rebellion to its fullest extent and then every everything begins to collapse which causes them to hate the system. They are miserable. Arrogance will always lead lead to misery. Self-absorption will always lead to great uh, misery and self-induced misery. And this is just taking all of that to a broader international scale. In verse 17, we're given the divine viewpoint of God and what he is doing in the end-time scenario. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill His purpose. See, they're not, they're, it, it, it's not that, that isn't saying that they're saying, "Oh, we're going to go out and do the will of God," but God has re- so restrain uh, so uh, removed the restraint of evil that they are going to now demonstrate to its fullest extent that the creature cannot be successful when he is living independently of the creator and that's what god's purpose is uh, is demonstrating here is that the creature can't live independently of the creator and when he does it will always eventuate in the self destruction of the creature so god putting it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose indicates that he is uh, allowing them in his permissive will to push their evil evil desires to the to the fullest extent and the result will be that their kingdom will uh, the kingdom of the beast will utterly collapse and this will bring to completion the all of the prophecies that God has given down through the ages and then the last verse states and the woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Now this indicates that the woman, this great city that reigns over the kings of the earth, when we put it all together here, goes back to Babylon. The thought system that was, that was inherent to, um, uh, to uh, Nimrod when he established the city of Babylon and brings everyone together to build a tower to, uh, to God, to the heavens, to make a name for themselves, this idea, the mentality, the ideas that were inherent in that religious system are inherent in every religious system, and it influences every culture down through the ages. There's nothing new under the sun. Every religious system, whether you're talking about Hinduism, uh, Buddhism, Islam, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, all these systems are based on some kind of human effort and human endeavor, and they all will lead to the same same collapse. And so it is the woman who represents the religious, philosophical, uh, economic system that man generates in independence of God, in antagonism of God, that where the, the kings of the earth try to establish their own kingdom, their own happiness, their own prosperity, completely apart from God. Now that brings us to the end of chapter 17. Chapter 18 is going to focus more on the uh collapse the economics of the, of the, economics of the uh, Babylonian system in the end times and bring us down to the conclusion of its destruction. So 17 and 18 are giving us a more detailed uh, image, detailed vision of what happens at the end times just as the whole Armageddon battle is about to unfold. And the focus is on the total economic collapse that will come. Babylon collapses, verse 2. In verse 11, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. So this will be the stock market collapse of all stock market collapses. And then Jesus comes back. So... Let's bow our heads, close in prayer, and we'll get to that next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, that we see that evil, though it is running its course, and often we question why you allow these things to happen, that there really is a purpose. You understand all of the data. You understand all of the things that are going on in our lives and in the uh, history of the world And you are working all of these things out for a purpose in order to demonstrate your righteousness and your justice and your love. And so evil must run its course for a time. And in the end times, it will be completely unrestrained. But in the end, you will demonstrate the eternal principle of the angelic conflict, which is that the creature cannot find any measure of success or happiness or meaning in life apart from a relationship of dependence upon you as our Creator. Father, we pray you would challenge us with the things we've studied uh, this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.